Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to tune in to this week's message. If you're a mom, would you remain seated? But if you're a son, daughter, husband, dad, can we put a, stand up on our feet and let's let our moms know how much we appreciate them. Come on. We can give them a standing ovation. Come on, you can do better than that. Let's let them know how much we appreciate them. And Sarah and the whole DP kids, they did an amazing job. You can see I had a little mommy and a little basketball player. That's who I had up here. But uh, they did a great job. And uh, again... Just thank you so much for being with us today. You know, mothers, they have characteristics and they have traits that, without a doubt, they've received straight from God, right? I mean, he said, houses and lands, Proverbs, what, 16, 9, come down from a, you know, from a father. But he said, a congenial spouse comes straight from the Lord. And I'm just testimony. Any other men? That's a good chance to say amen right there. It's a straight gift from God. I believe God thought them up. This is not a part of a subcommittee. God invented mothers. God dreamed them up. God did this. It started in the mind of God. I received a story some time ago of a second grade teacher. And she was teaching her class about a magnet. A magnet. M-A-G-N-E-T. Magnet. She showed them a magnet. And she taught them all what a magnet does. The function of a magnet. It attracts things. And she spent all day. The next day she's giving them a test. And so she gave them a test. And the first question said, uh, said, my name, my full name has six letters. The first one is M. And I pick up things said, what is my name? Or what am I? And over 90% of the class said mother. (laughs) Not magnets, because mothers do pick up things. But there are some things that, come on dads, mothers shouldn't have to pick up. Tim, you, you were there in the first one, right? There are some things, dads, that mothers shouldn't have to pick up. Amen? Some brownie points right there. Isn't it amazing how a, a dude can just... Like literally walk right out of his underwear into the shower. I mean, just and then you know, and then flip it up. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, we 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 have all kinds of things that our wives have to pick up. Moms pick up around the house, and so we honor you today, and uh, we really do believe and that that God uses you in such unique ways. And um, as I was preparing in this second week, we're in a series called Verified. Can you say it with me? Say Verified. It's a series on miracles and the God-man, Jesus Christ, who did these miracles. And last week, we talked about the miracle of perspective. And um, obviously, my desire and inclination was to move to speak about Mother the Mary of God. Um, Mother the Mary of God. Yeah, Mary the Mother of God. And uh, I, I felt in my heart this week as I was praying about that, that you know God was leading me in a little bit different direction. So I want to go a little bit different direction, but I want to speak to mothers and uh, if you're in this room and you didn't happen to be a part of that, I'm going to show you a slide real quick. Uh, we preached a message just a few weeks ago called A Mother's High Calling, where we looked in depth at Mary and what made her uh, able to literally bring and carry Christ to her generation. And you can always find that on our website. We have a podcast if you'd like to go back and listen to that. But uh, I want to speak to you today on a message that I'm entitling, A God of Miracles. The God of of miracles. If you got your Bibles, I want you to go with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and you say, Craig, where's my message card? Well, it is the first time in nine months the message card's not in front of you. And uh, there's pretty good reason. I moved this week. I moved. Been a crazy week with weddings. 
and moving all of our apartment into a house. So that's something to be celebrated. Our kids have friends, and they have a yard, and they have a road to play in. Elena's a friend across the street. She's six years old. She rang the doorbell yesterday, two days ago, and she said, Mr. Mosgrove, can I please play with your kids? I said, you don't know this, but you're an answered prayer. Because that's what we're praying for, for our kids. And so it's been an awesome week to move into a house Moving to a home, but uh, that's why you don't have a message card. But I've got you covered. I've got message slides in front of you. So let's go to Mark chapter 6. I'm excited to preach what God has given me to preach today. Beginning in verse 30 of Mark chapter 6. The Bible says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and I want you to get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples come to him and they say, it's a remote place. It's kind of strange where we're at. It's already very late. Jesus, I want you to send the people away. So they can go to the surrounding villages and go to the Galilee food court, Jerusalem food court, and get some hummus. That's not really there, but I just want to make sure you're paying attention in the text, all right? To the surrounding villages and buy themselves something to eat. Notice this. But he answered, as he always does, no, 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 I got a different idea. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Eight months' wages is true, the translation. Are we going to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Go and see. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five pieces of Ezekiel bread and two anchovies. And Jesus directed them to have all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and groups of fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. Notice this. What does Jesus do? He gives thanks for it. And broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. Notice that. That's powerful. He also divided the two fish among them. And the Bible says they all ate. And they all were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. That was what was remaining. And the number of men who had been there or had eaten was 5,000. Now, immediately Jesus made the disciples get in the boat, and they went on ahead to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is the northern point of the Sea of Galilee, just northeast of Capernaum, where Jesus had his headquarters. He dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went on to the mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was on alone on the land. And he saw the disciples, notice that, from the mountain. He saw the disciples straining on the oars because the wind was against them. And shortly before dawn, he went, the Bible says, out to them, walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. That's an interesting statement, Mark. Interesting. He was about to pass by them, but yet he saw them. Maybe God's wanting to actually deliver you out of your storm, but he's waiting for you to cry out to do it too. He intended to pass by them. Sounds like the road to Emmaus. He was going on beyond the two men's house. And they said, hey, would you kind of come have some bread with us? He, he intended to pass by them. Notice that. And the scripture says, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. And they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I. Bad translation. Literally, he says, ego me. In other words, I am. Moses in Exodus chapter 3, who I tell Pharaoh sent me, I am that I am. Jesus said, I am. 
Don't be afraid, I am. Well, that help me. I'm in the middle of a storm here, Jesus. I am, he says. Then he climbed into the boat with them. Notice this. And the wind died down, and they were completely amazed. Notice this. For they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Now, in this story that we just read, we have two very similar stories and two what I call pop culture miracles. That is to say, if you didn't ever grow up in church, ever been around church, you've probably heard about the story of Jesus multiplying five loaves and two fish. You've heard the story of Jesus walking on water. And we normally see these miracles as two separate miracles. But I want to challenge us to see that you cannot separate verse 52, their hearts were hardened from the message of the loaves, from that story. In fact, the story started before the story and the story went after the story. That's just like the Gospels, right? That God was trying to teach something. So the story starts on a mountainside. What's happening? The disciples have been teaching all day. And they come to Jesus and they give an account of what they've done and what they've taught. Hey, Jesus, this is what we've been teaching. And can you verify it or not? You know, it's a great leadership lesson right here. You've got to come back and give account to authority and leadership because you cannot be in authority unless you're under authority. So they come back and they give account to their authority. They give account to their leadership. This is what we've been teaching. Now, there is nothing incidental in the text. We know that God breathed out this word. So there's nothing incidental. The Bible says that they were very hungry. They had not eaten. The disciples were hungry. So Jesus said, I've got an idea. Since you're restful, I mean, you're, you're weary and you need a rest, let's go to the other side. People won't be there. We can have time to eat food. Now, what's amazing to me about that is something interesting happens. Long before Twitter, long before uh, Facebook, long before CNN, long before Fox News, long before Instagram, long before satellite television, long before all of that happened, there was a crowd that got there on foot before Jesus ever got there on the boat. In other words, there was something so compelling, so magnetic, so attractional, and so attractive about this Jesus that people would end up getting somewhere before he even got there you know what that tells me they didn't wait until the second worship song to show up they didn't wait till the third worship song to show up they didn't wait until the preacher got up to show up they showed up long before Jesus got there and they're ready to hear Jesus and they're ready to listen to Jesus and they're ready to experience Jesus's miracles it tells me as a pastor that when Jesus is in the house you can't keep people away when Jesus is in the house his ministry becomes ear deafening when Jesus is in the house small group leaders have to turn away people at the door but People get created enough to walk up on top of the roof and cut a hole in it and drop paralyzed men right in the middle of Jesus. Notice this. This is amazing about Jesus that, that people are waiting on him before he got there. People don't care how far they got to drive. People don't care how far they have to travel when Jesus is really there. Notice that. They just want to get there. So he begins to teach them. And, and the disciples are freaking out because they know when this man starts talking, he don't stop. Right? Some of y'all feel that way about your pastors. Don't, don't raise your hand or give me an affirmation. And so, so sometimes we feel like, I'm just kidding. Sometimes we feel, I mean, they're, they're thinking, man, he's never going to stop. So, so what they do is they think, well, we've never understood any other parables he said. I mean, we've been with him about a year. We don't understand anything he's saying. We're totally, you know, dumb moments. So might as well just go ahead and, and go to the people and just act like they're hungry. And then we'll go to Jesus and we'll tell him that the Jerusalem food court's about to shut down. And so you might as well just dismiss the people. And this is, by the way, what leaders often do. If you've been around leadership, when they have a problem and the leaders are hungry, they go to the leader's leader and they say it's the people's fault. They're hungry, so just dismiss them. When in reality, the text says no, nowhere that the people were hungry. It says the disciples were hungry. The disciples were famished. They're ready. They're ready to eat. They're ready to rest, right? So they go blame people for what they want. They want Jesus to be quiet 
so they can go and eat. Now, this is what Jesus does. He responds to them to prepare them for a miracle. Because every time Jesus prepares to do a miracle, we're going to learn something about miracles today. You need to miss this one. I don't miss this one. Every time Jesus prepares to do a miracle, he starts right here. He says, well, you give them something to eat. They don't like that. They think like many of us. We go to Jesus with a prayer request and we say, pray. We pray about something. God, we need this. And we don't realize we are actually the answer to our own, own prayer. That we're actually the answer to the prayer that we're giving God. Jesus says, you do something about it. Now, what we think he has said is, why can't you do anything about it? But we obviously misheard Christ because that's not what he said. And then what we do is we begin to give him a list of reasons why we can't do what he's asking us to do. Come on. You've ever been there before? He asked us to do something. And, and, and the disciples say, well, this is going to take eight months salary. There is no way, Jesus. I mean, nobody here packed enough lunch for, for 5,000 people. There is no way. And then we begin to give Jesus a list of why not. So often we do that. So often we do that. My first pastor, I was 18. I pastored for about two years and I turned 20. And, and uh, I'd only known the Lord for about four years. And the Lord really began to accelerate his purpose and plan. But, and a lot of my passion for discipleship came out of my lack of discipleship. And so God used that lack to birth in me a heart. And uh, I never pastored more than about 20 kids. You know, I was in obscurity, anonymity, so to speak, in the middle of nowhere. And, and God, it, God says, uh, I want to, to challenge you and, and ask you to leave uh, Hickson, Tennessee. And I'm going to ask you to go to Atlanta, Georgia, on the other side, in Gainesville. And I literally, folks, went from one Wednesday night from about 20 students in our student ministry to the very next Wednesday, seven days later, to about 600 students in the student ministry. Now, that's, a, that's an opportunity where you feel way in over your head. You're thinking, God, I can't do this. Do you not remember? I've only been saved five years. You do not remember? I have not the right to pedigree. I'm the first generation Christian in my family. I don't know if you remember this or not, but Jesus, Atlanta is not near Tennessee. You know, it's near it, but for that time it wasn't, you know. And, 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 and as if God's up in heaven saying, oh my goodness. Hey, angels in heaven, did anybody forget where Craig lives? Did we forget that? Hey, Peter, go get the Lamb's Book of Life and let's just check and see when his name was written down. I kind of forgot that he's only been five years old in me. I mean, we think that God's up there in existential crisis saying, oh, all three of me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what am I going to do? Hey, did you know the Wall Street is crashing this week? I had no idea that that, I don't know that, I don't know much, but God's saying, oh, this schizophrenic Dow Jones, he's up three points one day, four the down the, and, and we think God doesn't know what to do. But the reality of it is, no matter what's happening socially, no matter what's happening economically, no matter what's happening politically, God is still on the throne. He is still sovereign. He still is in control. Control. He is God. And sometimes we give him these excuses as if he doesn't know them. As if he doesn't personally guarantee the ability to do what he's asking us to do. God's on the throne. So, so I begin to say, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. And the Lord spoke to me and said, Craig, I never asked you if you could or couldn't. This wasn't a question. It, was, it wasn't like I asked you, do you think you can do it? And this is what's so amazing about Jesus. A little bit subversive here. It's almost like he doesn't listen to their excuses. But he does. He listens to them, gives their excuses. And then he says, okay, um, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. So look, 
He's like he doesn't listen to the excuses of why not. And he sends them back into the crowd to see what they do have. Ready? Ready? Because the ingredients for a miracle are always already in our midst. Did you hear what I just said? The ingredients for a miracle are always already in our midst. We always have the ingredients for a miracle. It's just that they're in seed form and we devalue the seed because it doesn't look like the harvest. We think we have nothing to work with, but Jesus cannot multiply what we don't recognize and until you're willing to recognize what you do have Jesus won't multiply what it is that you have so he says go and look and he sends them into the crowd to have a look because the ingredients are already in there now notice the Bible says in verse 38 that that there were 5,000 men there that day now you say Craig what in the world's going on here because in the custom of the day only men were counted 5,000 men were there that day. That's how you counted. But if you recorded women and children, which historians and philosophers, theologians would say, it's no stretch of the imagination. If you count women and children, that there are about 15,000 people on the hillside that day. And what's so amazing, they go in and they look among 15,000 people. And one little boy gives five loaves of Ezekiel bread and two anchovies. That's all he has. Let me ask you a question. Do you think in a a crowd that's 15,000 large that there's only one person who had a packed lunch? We sometimes don't think about this critically. I mean, do you really think there was one person out of 15,000... That had food on them that day. No, 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 no. I guarantee there were more. But this is what happens to us in church every week. And this is what happens to our lives every week. We see the magnitude of the problem. We see how bad the problem is. We see how large the problem is. And the disciples go in and say, does anybody have a lunch? Anybody have a lunch for 15,000 people? This Jesus won't stop talking until we get some lunch to feed everybody. So if you want to get out of this place, then you better, you better cough up your lunch. And what we do is we look. At the enormity of the problem. And we think because I can't do everything. I'll do nothing instead of the one thing that would activate something for everybody else. And what happens is we get paralyzed in our lack or our not enough. And every week. That's why when the pastors get up there and say. Hey every week you bring the tithe into the storehouse. We're not asking everyone to do, or one person to do everything. But God's commanding all of us to do the one thing we can do. That's tithe, right? In the storehouse. When we have a need, think about it. You go in your family. You go in the community. You see a need. And all of a sudden, we're not asked to do everything. I wasn't asked to leave Hickson to go to Free Chapel at the time or Gainesville where people desperately needed discipleship. And I had to go in in week one and disciple everybody. God wasn't asking me to do that. He was not asking you to do it all. But he's asking, what is the one thing you do? have and if you'll give me the one thing you do have I can do something miraculous out of it but you Craig have to give me that one thing what is indeed that one thing now notice notice did you notice who gave the ingredients for the miracle I find it fascinating that it was the little boy that was uncounted that provided the ingredients for the miracle that was counted The text said there were 5,000 men. That means this boy was not important enough to be counted in the people that were present. Isn't that amazing? The Bible says 5,000 men there that day. And this is what I've learned, church. I've discovered it's always the ones that everyone else discounts. It's always the one that everyone else thinks life doesn't count. It's always the one that says, oh, your life is not amounting to anything. You're not educated enough. You're not gifted enough. Your life will never amount to anything. You're not talented enough. You're not resource enough. You're not smart enough. It's everyone else that everybody discounts. It's every, You're not celebrity enough. You don't know enough preachers enough. You don't know enough individuals enough. You don't know people enough. And Jesus 
says, you know what? I might just be able to use that person that everybody else discounted. The one that society does, doesn't think matters at all. Because I know that when I do the miracle, I will actually get glory for that miracle. Because everybody in their life knows that that could not happen apart from me. So God uses the one that's uncounted for the miracle that would be counted. This is what Jesus does. God always takes the ones that everyone else discounts to perform the miracle that will be counted. Now listen closely. Do you know who packed this lunch that day? Yeah. If you know anything about the culture of the day, exactly right. You you know that daddy was not the one fixing the Ninja Turtle lunchbox. You know mama was. Do you think when that woman got up that morning like a normal day and she packed some anchovies and Ezekiel bread that she thought she was doing anything that was world changing? You listen up, mamas, very closely. And if you don't hear anything else I say today. Yet she was packing the ingredients for a miracle in the little boy's lunch that I would be talking about 2,000 years later. What do you mean, Craig? Every day, mama, when you're driving to school and you're sitting in a long car ride, maybe you're homeschooling, maybe you're the cool mom that everybody else's kids comes over to your house after school and you're speaking life over those kids and not death over those kids. Let me tell you something. Often when you don't think what you're doing is significant, often when you think what you're doing is the seed that you have should be devalued I'm here to tell you that everything you do mama everything you say mama everything you think mama contains the ingredients in it that will literally change generations to come this mama had no idea that what she packed in a lunchbox would literally provide a miracle for Jesus to display his provision and you don't know either that's why because every single major act of miracles always start with simple obedience it's simple obedience to do the things that you know already to do and mama this is what happens when you change diapers this is what happens you're raising a champion for Jesus Christ you listen to me your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do but someone you raise and you might raise a Billy Graham you might raise the next great evangelist you might raise a missionary you have no idea mama do not devalue the seed you have because because you think it's small and insignificant. God uses it for his glory. And there is nothing insignificant when it's done for the significance of the only thing that matters. Which is the glory of Jesus Christ. There is nothing insignificant. So what do they do? They bring it to Jesus. And give it to Jesus. Now can you imagine the frustration of the disciples? Especially Peter. Loudmouth Peter. He's like, alright Jesus. How you like that? These people are stingy. You told us to go in the crowd and we got five loaves and two fish out of 15,000 people. What are you going to do now? They're looking at Jesus if it's impossible, right? We do the same. We laugh about it. We do the same every day. They're, they're, they're giving it to Jesus thinking, oh, this is impossible. What are you going to do now, Jesus? What are you going to do? Because if Jesus, you would have done what we said, these people wouldn't be here hungry. Y'all never done that before? You never told God, God, why didn't you do what I said? God, why didn't you do what I thought you needed to do? God, why didn't you come through in the way that I thought you needed to come? We, we bring the small thing to God that seems to be impossible. We bring a situation that's impossible. And we think the impossibility actually excludes God from having any possibility to do anything. Folks, God doesn't even turn up until it's impossible. God doesn't even start until something gets impossible. You don't need God's help when it's possible. You don't need God's help when you're smart enough to make it happen. You don't need God's help when you're smart enough to make something grow. You don't need God's help when you're smart enough or wise enough or 
gifted enough or resource enough. Why do you need God if you're gifted enough? In fact, here's what I've learned. Many of the times we ask for the Lord's help. You know, we go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I need a miracle in this. God says they're not miracle issues. They're just management issues. Jesus, I need a financial miracle. I need it, Lord. No, honey, you just need to stop spending more than you have. It's just real simple. That's what you need to stop. And and, and see, and you think that it's a miracle issue. It's just a management issue. But when you take care of management issue, then Jesus shows up and does the miracle issue. He does that which you can't do. God, I need a health miracle. No, you don't. Just stop eating Krispy Kremes and get on the treadmill. Right? So a lot of what we're asking miracles... God says, you're not even in the miracle zone yet. You're in the management zone. I'm not going to show up in management zone. You can do it yourself. Why would I do that? Just take care of it. Management zone. You can do that yourself. I'm not turning up until it's impossible. I'm not turning up till it's utterly impossible. Impossible is where God starts. We think the impossibility of a situation disqualifies God from being able to do anything when that's what makes him God. He's not living to our time and space. Folks, he is supernatural. I don't know what your need is today. I don't know if it's a spiritual need, a relational need. I don't know if it's a health need. I don't know what it is. But if you're in the place where in the natural it seems utterly impossible, you are poised for a miracle. If it seems totally out of grasp and out of way, you are poised for a miracle. That's where Jesus turns up. Why? Because what is impossible with men is possible with God. With God, all things are possible and nothing is impossible. This is our God. Now, do you see what he does next? Jesus took the bread, and the first thing he did is he gave thanks. He blessed it. Jesus gave thanks for what would never be enough. He began to bless what was not enough. How often do we, instead of blessing our not enough, curse our not enough? I hate this house. I hate my marriage. I hate my boss. I hate my employer. I hate my job. I hate where I'm at. I hate where I live. I can't stand my marriage. I can't stand my kids or losers. It's amazing to me how when we are disillusioned, when we are disappointed, or we are discouraged because things didn't work out like we wanted them to, or God didn't come through when we wanted them to come through, or in the way we wanted them to come through, we begin to murmur and complain and begin to curse the very things that are the ingredients for a miracle. Jesus blessed the very impossibility he blessed the very crumbs he blessed the ingredients that were not enough and what you've got to get in your mind and your spirit is whatever you lack and whatever is not enough whatever is lacking in your marriage whatever lacking in love and relationship you don't say oh I hate this house no you say God maybe this house is not where I want to live and for, for, for the rest of my life but I thank God that I got a roof over my head you know what God this might not be the job that I want this might not be the calling of career I desire but Lord I thank God that I got food on the table can you imagine God our marriage might not be where it needs to be but thank God that we love each other and we're trying to work on thank God you know God maybe my my kids are not living and serving you the way that I want them to serve you but thank God that the hound of heaven and the spirit of God is out searching them and will draw them in and they will come back to the house of the Lord and they will serve God with their life imagine how your life would change if you started blessing what was not enough if you took what was not enough and put it in the hands of a God who is more than enough, he would glorify himself in you and your situation. Listen, we cannot expect God to bless what we curse. So if you're cursing your marriage, he can't bless it. He won't override that. You're cursing where you live, he's not going to override that. So think. 
Jesus began by blessing what was never enough. Notice this. The Bible says he gave thanks, blessed it. And then he broke it. Everybody said broke it. Now notice this. The miracle of multiplication didn't happen until he broke it. The miracle is in the breaking. While Jesus kept breaking, the miracle kept multiplying. And as long as he broke, miracles multiplied. Broke, multiplied, broke, multiplied, broke. And as God was breaking, miracles were multiplying. Breaking, multiplying. I don't know about you, but, but, but is there anyone here who knows what it's like to be broken? Broken relationship, broken marriage, broken finances, broken family, broken situation. Anybody know what it's like to be broken other than jacked up preacher guy on the stage today? You know what it's like to be broken. You know what it's like to, to literally feel like things are crumbling all around you we think brokenness disqualifies us from the purposes of God and that we think God can't use me because I was abused God can't use me because I was divorced God can't use me because I committed such great sins God can't use me because I've dragged my feet for so long and I want to tell you then what happens is the enemy of our soul comes to box us in through shame and guilt and we get to a place where we try to hide those broken places and we come in and we hide our scars and we put on a mask and, and we say God I wish you could use me but I'm just going to have to survive and come to church for the next 30 years I'll just keep coming until I meet you in the by and by I can't be used because I'm so broken let me tell you it's from those very broken places that you think are unusable that God qualifies you to be used by him it is never by your strengths that God uses you it is never where you're strong that God uses you you would get the glory you would get the credit but when you come to him in brokenness and say God out of this area comes out of this ashes comes a miracle out of these ashes comes a unique ministry that is where God gets glory and so often so often we think you know what when things get broken throw them away but God doesn't use anything until it's broken uh, many of you know my story I didn't meet Jesus till I was 16 totally born again radically transformed February 20 of 2002 I spent 30 minutes in an altar just crying out to the Lord to save me redeem me keep me from hell the Lord redeemed me. And when he did, everything changed in me. And my, all my prayers began to pray for my family because mom and dad and sister were not serving God. And all that turmoil and inner tempest that kept growing in my family all the time, I just began to pray all the time in my room. I would grab the Bible and stand on it. And I would pray, Lord, use me to reach my family. And about three weeks passed. It was a Sunday night. And my mom and sister were in a really big fight. And they were downstairs and words were being exchanged. Really, really wrong words. Hurtful words. Cursing words. And um, I didn't know any scripture. In fact, that was my weakness. I only knew John 3.16. I did. People say, well, uh, you're in ministry today because you went and got theological training. I'm like, folks, most of my development did not come from a four-year university. It came from because, man, I got so hungry for the word of God. At 16, I knew nothing. I knew John 3.16. That's all I knew. That's it. That's really all I knew. And I knew Matthew eleven twenty six. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy. Burns light. I'll give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you. I knew that because I'd read it. And my mom is fighting my sister. And she gets up from the fight. Comes up the stairs. She's crying profusely. The Spirit of God spoke to me and said, this is your mom's time. And so I had to muster up the courage to try to do this. God was doing the saving. He just wanted me to be a part. <laughs> and so, so she comes across the door precipice. And I said, Mom, come here. Nervous. She steps in and she's, what's going on? I said, come here, mom. She said, what? She said, come over here. 
She came over there and said, Mom, get down on your knees. I said, what? I said, get down on your knees. She got on her knees and opened the Bible and said, Mom, I don't know much. But Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty six, come to me. And I only got to me and the Spirit of God came in the room and redeemed my mama. And he did that out of my own ignorance. He did not save my mama through my strength. He saved my mama through my weakness. God will take the broken areas of your life and use it for his glory. This is how his light shines through your life. You've got to understand. You've got to be willing to embrace that brokenness. You've got to be willing to embrace that weakness. Why? God takes the broken fragments of your life and he weaves them together to work everything for your good because you're called according to his purpose some of you are like Joseph in Genesis 50 20 he looks at his brother and says what the enemy and what you meant for evil God you've intended it for my very good I want to tell you church the very thing that you're sitting in this room with that you thought was going to kill you you thought was going to take you out you thought you would never recover from you thought you'd never be able to get back involved in again you never thought I, I, I would never be able to do business again I'll never be able to work relationally again that's the very thing that God wants to come in and turn around and redeem for his glory right in that moment and the enemy of your soul makes you want to think that you're not able to get out I watched a documentary a few weeks ago where they were in uh, in British Columbia and there was a there was a, a, a plaster wall that these people in the penitentiary the prisoners stayed there for 20 plus years and they painted it to, as if it was a brick wall it was actually plaster and no one over 20 years tried to get out and at the end of the 20 years they realized it only took two of them to bust through the wall and they would have been open. But that's what the enemy does. He puts you, hems you in in walls thinking you're not going to get out. When really all it is is a piece of paper. All it is is for God to breathe on it and bust. And you think, oh, I can never get out of this. I'll never recover from this. God says, I want to come to that moment, that place, and redeem it for my glory. This is God. Isn't this how God operates? In fact... God redeems every broken piece of your past. Why? Because catch this. He can give someone else a future from your past. See, we Pentecostal Charismatics, most of us, we have all faith traditions in here. I'm speaking from my own personal experience right now. We, we've taught people for so long, come to the altar and leave your issues at the altar. Never pick them up. Don't pick them back up again. But God actually wants you to pick the issues up once they've been redeemed and be used as your message for a lost and dying world. See, this is what happens in John 20. Notice this. I want to speak to you just a minute about authenticity and leadership and ministry. Because I think this is really powerful. In John chapter 20, Jesus, in resurrected state, comes back from the grave. I want you to see this text. Now, Thomas, who was called Didymus, he was a twin. He was not with the disciples when Jesus came. What? Jesus comes after his resurrection. And so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hands in the side, I will not believe. Everybody say, see it. Feel it. Say, see it? Feel it. Now, a week later, his disciples were gathered in the house, and Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Notice that. And then he went over to Thomas and said, put your finger right here between my radius and ona. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Right there. Stop doubting. Believe. Thomas said, to my Lord and my God, Jesus said, because you've seen me, you have believed. Yet blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Craig, what are you talking about? Well, listen, folks, in our day and age, transparency is optional, but it must be intentional. You know what I've learned about leadership? I really, I've been serving under leaders who are so afraid to share about vulnerability. One of the biggest differences between I see, I see in my parents' generation and our generation is my parents' generation believed that if people knew your weaknesses, they wouldn't trust your strengths. 
my generation believes if they don't know your weaknesses, they will not trust your strengths. So we've got a bad collision course of values here. Because we've got young people that don't esteem the ones in front because they seem to be too plastic. And they're not giving any problems. And they're not talking about where God has delivered them from. And they're not talking about what God has faithfully done in their life. But notice... Thomas needed to see it and feel it. I value transparency. People say, Pastor Greg, I appreciate your transparency in ministry. I'm like, how else would you do ministry? I don't understand that. That doesn't make sense to me. Like, could you do ministry cosmetically? <laughs> that would be powerful, wouldn't it? Never tell anybody what you've come through. Never tell anybody how the scripture's done something in your life, right? It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't even have any strength to it at all. And what I realize about leadership is you got to be intend to be transparent. Notice now, the catch is Jesus comes back from the grave with a resurrected, glorified body. He was beaten to death beyond recognition, head two times the size. Isaiah says unrecognizable. His beard was pulled out. He had nail prints. It was a bloody, mangled mess on the cross. He died for our sins on the cross, but now he gets up. And when he gets up, he has a choice to make. He now has a glorified body. And it could do some things that it could not do before it was glorified. Like, namely, walk through walls. There's no lacerations in his head. There's no 39 stripes on his back. But yet, he chooses to keep nail prints in his hands and a piercing in his side. The question is best asked. Why? Why did Jesus keep these? Because even in his glorification, if he does not have a testimony to bear witness of what he's gone through, nobody will have a permission to open up themselves about what they've gone through. Nobody will be liberated to speak of their own wounds, of their own scars, of their own difficulties. So he chooses to keep them. And notice the disciples are locked behind doors. Their fear of the Jews. And Jesus just goes through locked doors. Isn't that amazing? In our day and age, we call that gangster. I don't know if you can say that about Jesus, but that's what we would call it. That would be, there's, I mean, there's nothing more authentic than that. Jesus, and people were like, yeah, we get these big eggheads and we're intellectuals. Well, Jesus jimmied the lock and turned off the ADT alarm. And they were so pontificating of what they would do next in ministerial success and reign that Jesus just happened. No, no, he walked through the locked door. Aren't you thankful that Jesus still walks through locked doors? Come on, somebody. I'm not talking about true locked doors. I'm talking about locked doors of emotions. I'm talking about where you said you'll never let anybody in again. Or you said, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to make an inner vow and judgment that I will never trust another man. I will never trust another person. Jesus comes right through the locked door. He comes right through the locked door of emotions. Right through the locked door of of self-security. Jesus comes through the door. And notice what's so bad about this is that when he gets there, Thomas is not there. It's like the ultimate missed opportunity. Thomas goes back, what happened? I don't know. The glorified Lord, with all his glory, shining like the sun, came into our room. You didn't miss much. And Thomas says, unless I see it and feel it, I won't believe it. Unless I see his hands and I feel his side, I will not believe it. So here's what Jesus does. He walks back in the room the second time, a week later. He walks through the door again. He says, hey, Thomas, here I am. I got something to show you. You ready? Come here. And Thomas says, I want to see something Jesus and the disciples saw, but I don't want to just see. I want to feel this time. There's so much revelation here because he then looks at him and says, put your hands in my hands and your whole hand in my side. Folks, we could spend the next 10 days talking about that one scripture. 
I don't have time. I'm going to give you just a couple of quick points about authenticity. Jesus is the most authentic person that's ever lived. If you take three people on a mountain and you transfigure before them as bright as the sun, and then a couple of days later you cry in front of them, that's called transparent. That's called vulnerability. That's called transparency. This is our Jesus. And notice what happens is Jesus comes and asks him to put his hands there. When you're a leader, folks, it is not good for you to just let people see your glory and not your pain. It's not good for people just to see you on the mountain and not in the Garden of Gethsemane because you'll give them a warped sense of what ministry is all about. Let me tell you what not, will not help a next generation. When you say, well, I had $20 and I tithed and I got $200. Then I got tithe $200 and I got $2,000. I got $2,000 tithed. I got $20. Folks, I don't want to know. I want to know your problem. Talk to me about your issue. If all you show me is a blessing... Then I'm going to be warped of what life is all about. Or have you forgotten that you had problems? Have you gotten to your glorified state where your sins are so managed now that you've chosen to let go of the only wounds that will ever prove to the world that you've been through anything? Have you in your glorified state chosen to put your wounds on the backside and yet our generation needs to see it and feel it? Our generation won't believe until they see it and they feel it. And they see your wounds that have been cleansed and they feel the wounds that have been cleansed. See, some people can see the transformation in you, but others got to feel it. So you can go up to him like Jesus said, hey, I know, I know I got delivered from pornography, but I don't want you to see it. Would you feel it real quick? Look, eight years. My head was steeped in the sewage. And look, now I have pure thoughts. Feel it. No, no, don't just hear me. Feel it. Feel it. Put your hand in there. Feel it. And here's what's so amazing. When we give handshakes, that's accessible to anybody, right? Walk through the sanctuary. People say, well, you give your testimony. Well... Yeah, I do give my testimony, and I give God glory for that. And I want to give an unedited testimony. We love edited testimonies, don't we? Because they seek to preserve our reputation and demean His. And our unedited testimonies drop our reputation and glorify His. Our world does not need your edited testimony. That is not what they need. And so when I share, people say, well, you shared everything. Well, no, folks, because... It's one thing to touch my hands, but if you get close to me and you're a disciple of me and you're close to me, then what I'll do is I'll start lifting up my shirt because that's a little bit more intimate. And I'll let you put your hand in my side. And notice, notice this. Notice this. When he put his hand in the side, he was not contaminated. He could put his whole hand in there and there was no blood. Why? Because he had bled all of his blood on the mercy seat when he did it three days ago. And see what happens sometimes. Let me give you a testimony of leadership. Don't you dare go and share with somebody else what you've been through when you're still bleeding because what was meant to help them actually contaminates them and you pass on your bitterness to the next generation and your biohazardous material goes to the next generation and your pain and you getting off after church every day and you wonder why your kids don't love God and serve God because they heard you all growing up at lunch talking about how you didn't like this about the pastor and you didn't like what this pastor did at that moment and then we wonder what happens when we contaminate the people below us and the people behind us but see what happened with Thomas is he was able to put his hand in the very thing that would help him and not contaminate him. He would not be intoxicated. And God says, hey, you're living in a generation that's got to see it and feel it. See it and feel it. It's out of that brokenness. It's out of that brokenness. So I'm almost finished. Look at the end of the story. They all ate, the Bible said, and they were satisfied. And normally what we would do is we would, 
we end here in the story and we come to church each week. And we think, whoo, Jesus, you filled me last week. I need to be filled again. <laughs> right? Like week to week, miracle to miracle. But let me tell you something. It's not enough in our day and age to just live miracle to miracle. To live Sunday to Sunday. And the day and age in which you and I live, it's not enough because it's what happens between the miracles that's really going to determine the strength of our Christian walk. How well we walk is going to be determined by what happens between the miracles. What do you mean, Craig? Well, Jesus finished the miracle, right? Five loaves, two fish, multiplied 15,000 people ate. And then they go and gather 12 basketfuls. If everything in Scripture is intentional, you see what just happened. 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples. Now, go each and get a basketful, Jesus says. And then the Bible says immediately, he sent them into a storm. Now, folks, this is an omniscient God. He knew where he was sending them. That means that not all storms are from the devil. That God will send you in the storms. Why? Because, you say, Craig, sometimes God allows us to go into the storm because it's in the storm where he wants to reveal to us what's already in us. He knows what's in us, but he can't reveal to us what's in us until we go through the storm. So God sends us into the storm. We often don't know what's in us. We think we know one thing about truth and about scripture, but it's not until we get into a storm of life where something alive comes alive in us. Something new comes alive in us. It's a storm that reveals what we really believe. Now, notice this is the first mass miracle that Jesus ever did in scripture. Every other one had been one-on-one. But he fed 15,000. And, and the Bible says even at this point, the disciples still don't know his identity as the Son of God. They do not know him as the Messiah. They know him as the prophet. They know him as the miracle worker. They know him as the teacher. But they do not know him as Jesus, Son of the living God. It's interesting to me, you can come to church every single week, set in week after week, and you can sit in the midst of the miracles of God, in the midst of what's happening. You can be in the midst of partaking of the miracles of God and yet still not have met the God of the miracles. You can be on the hillside and still don't know the one that multiplied them. You can be perceiving and eating the ingredients of the miracle and not know the one who multiplied it. This is what Jesus did. And so Jesus is saying, it's not enough for you just to know about my acts. It's not enough for you just to know about my power and my work. You need to know me. And I need to know if you know me. So I'm going to send you into a storm because the storm's the only way I need to know. And I can determine that. So I'll send you into the storm. And the Bible says they go into the storm. He goes up on a mountainside to pray. Why? Why does he go up on a mountainside to pray? Because from this point in the text, nowhere else in the rest of the Gospels is his ministry menial. It is blowing up. Everywhere he goes, his ministry blows up from this point forward. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.